There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to health care, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. We are leaving our time now. There are places where time moves more slowly than here. We honor all four directions, east, west, north, south. And we also honor the fifth direction, the vertical one, which is in us here, today, today, today. The Medicine Path Podcast is an ongoing exploration into the intersections of spirituality, depth psychology, and psychedelics. The Medicine Path is a wholly independent and listener-supported project, so please consider becoming a supporter at patreon.com forward slash medicinepath or by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes. You can find out more information at medicinepathpodcast.com. Now, here's your host, Brian James. Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. The voice you heard at the top of the podcast was American poet, activist, author, and founder of the mythopoetic men's movement, Robert Bly, who died this past November 21st at the age of 94. Robert would often make this kind of announcement before reading a poem or story and accompany himself on his trusty Turkish lute, evoking the Islamic music and poetry that were such an important part of his professional and spiritual life. And by doing so, he's calling us into the liminal space of ritual and imagination, a space outside of earthly time and constraints. Robert loved the Persian poets like Rumi and Hafez, and he took up Sufism as a spiritual practice late in his life. The Sufis believe that after someone dies, their soul goes to the Alam al-Mital, which is the imaginal world that lies between the material and spiritual planes. 
and there the nafs or soul takes on an imaginal body and continues its spiritual development before ultimately graduating to the highest spiritual realm. And we here on the material plane can visit the alam al-mital in our dreams, imagination, and ecstatic trance states. I'd like to imagine that Robert's nafs is hanging out in the alam al-mital with the great poets and writers that he loved so much. Rumi and Hafez, Antonio Machado, Pablo Neruda, Robert Graves, Carl Jung, Rilke, as well as his old friends, Joseph Campbell, Marion Woodman, and James Hillman. Since Robert's passing a couple weeks ago, the outpourings of grief and praise from people all over the world who loved and admired him have been flooding the internet. And I hope that if we continue to sing his praises loud and clear, that they'll reach him wherever he is now. Personally, I felt it was important to pay tribute to this man who's been a kind of mentor from afar to me for more than 25 years, almost half my life. So I reached out to some folks who knew him intimately, and I hope that their stories and first-hand impressions of Robert help to fill out the image we have of him with some color, shape, and detail. And I hope that that adds something substantial to his memory beyond the usual newspaper obituaries that have tended to focus on his literary achievements and the controversy around his work in the so-called men's movement. Through this series of interviews, I hope to leave you with a sense of what it was like to be with Robert's physical presence and gain an appreciation for the complex and beautiful man behind the staggering body of work. For this first episode, I called on English writer and storyteller Martin Shaw, who met Robert at the Great Mother Conference back in the 1990s. Robert quickly recognized Martin's gifts and took him under his giant wing, making him the resident bard at both the Great Mother and the Minnesota Men's Conferences. Robert called Martin a true master, one of the very greatest storytellers we have. Now please, join me and Martin Shaw as we pour out a libation for the late, great Robert Bly, here on The Medicine Path. with Martin Shaw and Martin I wanted to speak with you on this occasion because well I've been thinking a lot about Robert Bly these days um he passed on a couple weeks ago I guess and you know I was just revisiting his work and really feeling the love that I have for this guy who I never met and someone who's been a kind of constant voice in my life over the past 25 years or something. And uh, I just really felt like I wanted to speak with some people who had actually been with him in person. Cause it's one thing to be affected by someone across space and time through their writings and recordings of them speaking but it's a altogether different thing to be in the presence of someone and i wanted to 
maybe get a sense of that from you today. And uh, hopefully the people who are mourning his loss uh, will get a little nourishment from that. Yeah, so thanks for making the time to do this. No problem, Brian. Thank you for thank you for having me. I think um, you know anybody that is aware of Bly and is also connected to social media would have seen a sort of a veritable assault of recollections over the last fortnight, and you suddenly realise just how many people knew him personally or were influenced by him. He's there's a Rilke translation of his. He says, "I live my life." in widening orbits that move out over the things, something like that. Uh, and, and that was Robert. You know, you. It, it, I was watching a documentary about Hemingway yesterday, and there was a writer, Tobias Wolfe actually, saying um, Hemingway shifted all the furniture in the room for young writers. And even if you denied Hemingway's influence, you were still sitting on his fucking sofa or on uh, the, you uh. sit on the edge of the chair, but it was still connected to the room he'd moved about. And I thought, oh, that's Robert Elwood Bly. You know, mm. that, that's what Robert did for a lot of us. Yeah. Would you say that, that uh, those spheres of influence were... I mean, it's for anyone who's interested in kind of men's work or fairy tales. Uh, do you feel his influence as a poet too? Yes, more so um, probably than the other stuff these days because I was so um, suffused in that, leading the Great Mother Conference for just under a decade. Um, it's the poems I actually return to again and again and again. That doesn't take away anything from his uh, achievement with mythology and story but he actually had uh, a very fertile run as a poet in the last 15 years or so of his life for me personally the really the stuff I come back to is actually very early uh, very early books in the 60s and then actually this last great flood of tremendous work which reminds me of a there's actually a painter called Cy Twombly uh Antonio Tapias another painter I, Picasso of course you know great late mature blasts of work that seem to seem to pay libation that everything to everything that came before but then burst into new ground for, for anyone that didn't know him he wasn't a letdown in the real uh he was irascible powerful vulnerable and always spontaneous absolutely spontaneous you never quite knew what was going to happen every time you sat down with him i remember i think the last time i ever saw him uh it was in the middle of winter in minnesota and we went for a meal i think maybe there was a few of us there. Maybe the poet Jay Leeming, I think, was there. I can't remember. Thomas Smith, his secretary, Ruth and Robert. And we're having this meal. And by now, Robert, his memory isn't great. So the thing to do is to bring with you copies of Yeats and Neruda and Machado and, um, you know, Galway and all these other masters. And you just keep putting the books in front of him. And he'll go out, you know, this is what's wrong with this poem, or this is what's right. And watching us at another table 
clearly there's a business meeting going on. But one of the businessmen has spotted who's in the restaurant with me and the rest of us. And he's gone absolutely ashen white. And he gets up and he walk. He leap. You know, the meeting is abandoned. He walks over to the table and he says, "Mr. Bly, you won't remember me, but in 1969 you came to St. Olaf's College, Minnesota, and you gave out. You actually came to the edge of the stage because you knew students were broke, with boxes and boxes of the book that had won the National Book Award, The Light Around the Body, and I got a copy." I never forgot it. I never forgot you. And last night, for the first time in 50 years, I started to write poems again. And I can't live another day if I don't admit that one of those poems is in my business case. Can I read it to you? Oh, wow. <laughs> now, that is a brave man. That's a brave man. Because, um, you know, Robert doesn't have a filter or diplomacy when it comes to art. <laughs> you're going to get like, it, yeah. You're going to get entirely what, what manifests in him at that moment. And I think the guy had realised quite how high the stakes were, but I remember him walking across the restaurant, getting the poem out, you know, in my imagination at least, his hand is shaking, and he reads this poem, and then there's a, a quiet, and Robert looks at him and says, that's the greatest poem I ever heard. Mm. And the guy wobbles, actually wobbles, as if he's about to lose his balance. Um, and just goes down and sits at his table, and he looked as if he had witnessed some, some dimension of blessing it's difficult to talk about, which, of course, he had. And then... <laughs> Then as we were leaving the restaurant, somehow Robert and I, and he was in his 80s, we got into a, a kind of friendly wrestle that involved us rolling into a snow drift. But of course, a Minnesotan snow drift only has a bit of snow. Most of it's ice because it's been there for months. And so in the, in the mosh of it, um, I remember cutting my own head open a little bit and Robert splayed a bit of the blood on him, which horrified everybody, and he had his big Russian hat off. And then he and Ruth went away and I, I never saw him again. But that night I was giving a talk, probably I suppose for about 100 folks in Minneapolis, and by now I had a huge black eye and a great vivid cut across my forehead and the skin had gone yellow and no one had seen Robert for a few years in public, but I was able to sit down and there was a sort of, not quite an audible gasp, but people could see that I was injured. Uh, and I, I was able to say, I had lunch with Robert Bly today. Uh, and there was a great roar of laughter because everybody knew that was the kind of thing that could happen. And that is one tiny tale of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds that many 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 people have i'm just one of uh countless countless people that had those kind of stories when you were close to him the afternoon could take a twist you never expected mm. you often talked about that when the wild man when we're reconnected to the wild man inside of us it brings a a lot of that spontaneity to our living so, I mean, it sounds like he was just full of that. 
Yeah, he. if you were boring and, and if you were talking to him and it was getting boring, if there were flowers or plants nearby, he'd reach over and just start eating the plant or eating the flower just to let you know that too much sobriety, too much satin had entered the conversation. And we needed to, we needed, we needed Hermes. Uh, he was a great Hermean figure. You could argue with Robert and if you could handle it, because when he would turn his, you know, when you turn both barrels on you, you've got to be strong as an ox to survive that. But if you can, on occasion, mid-argument, he'd go, I've changed my position. Mm. You're right. And he'd soften. And that was uh, an extraordinary quality. Um, I've probably said this before, and it's not for me. Someone else said it, I think. Uh, they said, you know, Robert, there's different ways of healing. And Robert had, you know, like the image I just gave you in the restaurant of uh, the healing that comes from a blessing. But Bly also had a brand, like you'd brand a cattle in the other hand. Uh, and if there was villainy or hypocrisy or, um, or, or something wasn't being said that needed to be said, he'd say it. Mm. Uh, now, in the tradition that I come from, that's actually called being close to the Holy Spirit. That's 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 uh, in the Celtic tradition. You see, the, the Holy Spirit is not a dove; it's a wild goose. Hmm. And when the Holy Spirit arrives, the chairs fly over, the wind, you know, the, the, all the windows are open, uh, and everybody feels rattled and changed. It's not entirely comfortable. Mm-hmm. And Robert had had that going on in him. He could lean into that. He would always lean into danger. Yeah, wow. That story too uh, shows another side of him that uh, we don't get through the recordings and writings, but the physicality of the man, that he would be uh, someone who would tussle with you in a snowbank at 80 years old or whatever. Yeah, I mean Robert. Robert, a you got to remember he's very tall, so he you know tall, strong, vigorous, farmer's son. You know, son of Jacob and Alice, and, and Alice Bly. The his real name should be Blyer, but when they got to America, they had to take the A away, so they became Bly. But there's still a Blyer in Norway. He was vigorous. I remember the first time I met him at the Great Mother Conference. Uh, there was a sweat lodge being run in the afternoon and Robert was well into his, actually I'd say he's well into his seventies at that point. And you don't expect to see your great illustrious leader wandering around in nothing but a towel and bits of hay over his face (laughs) and and stopping to engage in conversations to the car for 45 minutes with with very few clothes on. Uh, And, you know, talking about writing his dissertation on Yeats. But that was that was what was going on with him, and it was why he was so thrilling. He was never boring. Um, it was it was extraordinary, and I don't think he was. There are different. There are different uh, seasons in Robert's life. You know, different interests. By the time I was involved with him, his primary. One of his primary interests was actually in Sufism. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons that I felt that the conferences 
were losing some of their energy was that we were having too many, I suppose, what you would think of as religious or spiritual teachers, and we no longer had a story as the backbone from the beginning, the middle, and the end of the thing. Hmm. Once the story's in the room day after day, and you've got to give libation to Joy Timpanelli and Robert Bly and Marion Woodman and others for doing that, that does something to the human soul that no amount of theology can get close to. Hmm. But I have to say, my first experience of the conferences were that I had, I'd arrived at the end of something great, but it was the end. Hmm. Uh, so I then had, um, when I took on more of a leadership position, I want, I actually went back, I, I spoke to a, a lovely man, who did the sound, Robert Smith. I said, Robert, can you can you get me the recordings from the early days? Let me hear the uncensored 1978, 1979. Show me the mayhem. Let me let me find out what the the what what the quixotic firebrand energy of this conference was. And it and it really helped. Um Robert initially was not really a great storyteller. What he was very good at was the exegesis of the stories, but he was too he was too casual in the telling, and that's why that's why uh, again I'm, I'm mentioning this extraordinary woman Joya Timpanelli, who's seen they call her the dean of story, American storytelling. Joya came along, and she understood every gradient of a story you could imagine, but she also understood the efficacy of performance, of actually mm-hmm. telling them. And if you told the story in a hurry, if you were too quickly, too quick to get to exegesis, you dishonored it. Mm-hmm. And so you see him between the mid-70s and the mid-80s getting better and better and better as a storyteller and settling in to a um you know the the role the role of the elder uh not losing his zaniness not losing his curiosity but by the time i and john hits i mean this is the thing because he lived for so long robert's already well into his 60s he's already a senior citizen by the time that whole revolution begins but by then he'd been a Jungian for 15 to 20 years he'd won as I said they won the National Book Award he'd been in the Navy when he was 17 he translated I mean if you just start to look at the list of his translations it's absolutely yeah. mind-blowing Cesar Viejo Juan Ramon Jimenez Thomas Transtromer uh, Lorca Machado Rumi it it just goes on and on and on. And his book, it's a lovely book uh, of the translations, it's called Stealing Sugar from the Castle. And I remember him saying, he said, that's all how I always feel when I'm translating some genius's work. I'm stealing sugar from the castle. Hmm. Yeah, that's amazing. And I mean, when Iron John, the book came out, he said he'd already been working on that story for 10 years. Yeah, you had. Iron John comes out in October 1990, but I think it was in maybe very late 79, but probably 1980. That he, I think, I think he does his first men's retreat in, uh, I think it was in New Mexico. Now, the interesting thing is the the Great Mother Conference roars into life 
in the mid-70s. And Bly is absolutely a student of Marie-Louise von Franz. And I'm, I, everywhere I go, I'm always petitioning for Marie-Louise von Franz because without her, the structure of Iron John in the way that we understand it wouldn't exist. Hmm. It's her patent, basically, now, which is story, exegesis, story, exegesis. Yeah, to break up the story and put the exegesis after these little, um, yeah, vignettes. But uh, so did he actually study with Marie-Louise von Franz or was it through her, her writing? No, I think it was through her writings. He he had a big, he saw Joe Campbell, Joseph Campbell in, I think, um, I think it was Toronto in 1975. And Campbell was bringing together his immense canon of work on both mythology and its relationship to initiation. And that was a huge light bulb going on for Bly. And then later on in the 70s and in the 80s, uh, Bly and Campbell worked together regularly. And, you know, Bly was, a, <laughs> Bly was an old lefty and Campbell was an old righty, you know. Uh, but they, they, you know, Bly always, he always loved, he always loved Campbell. I'll tell you a story nobody knows. I was once at a conference and I was walking past the shop where they um, where they sell all the sort of CDs and books. And in the dark, I could see this huge figure kind of stumbling around in the shop. And I thought, oh, I better go in because uh, I don't know who's in there. You know, you're not meant to go in other than between four and six. And I go in and in the half light, there's Robert and he's holding about 100 hours of lecture CDs of Joseph Campbell, and he's putting them under his coat. And he says, "Tell no one," and leaves. <laughs> uh, and he never, he never, never lost his love for for Campbell. The thing about Joe Campbell, and it's the same, it's the same for Bly. If you've if you've really achieved something, then people grow suspicious about you because it becomes simply too popular. People are always going to harp on about Merci Eliardi. But they're but they're embarrassed to talk about Campbell because Campbell had a a range of influence and success that's so mind boggling. It's embarrassing to admit to its influence. It's like, you know, everyone I know claims the first record they ever bought was the Velvet Underground. No, it mm. wasn't. It was Led Zeppelin too, and we all know it. Uh, you know what I, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so so it took it took Robert time, but in the seventies he. I think he might have met Marie Louise von France. Someone will know, but he was certainly books like um, Shadow and Evil in Fairy Tales, uh, her work on alchemy. Um, mm. Then, as I said, him working with the storyteller Joy Timpanelli, and he's you know he was a, a good Jungian. He he ran a course I think in his his town, a small population, where he said you know what does what does Jung mean to Madison, Minnesota? Mm. And people came along for ten weeks. He was he was a very very quick study. He could he could eat he could eat and absorb information and all sorts of spiritual disciplines very quickly. Yeah, that's that mercurial quality. Being able to flight about and connect things, and uh, you know, Mercury being the friend to all gods and to people, and sound. I you know just picturing him with joseph campbell i mean <laughs> they just seem like such different kinds of guys uh but yeah i guess it worked 
somehow. It, 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 it did work. And I mean, what people do forget is that, that Bly's a Harvard graduate. Hmm. He he did, he had, a, you know, he's born into, I think, probably second generation Lutheran Norwegian family. And somehow <laughs> in the middle of that, after enlisting in the Navy a year early, secretly, by 1947, he's in Harvard. Robert Creeley had been there the year before. And I remember him saying that there was a sort of heroic mood because we just won the war. And it meant that the standards of the poets was going to be high. Uh, so he came out of it with initially a kind of uh, a Herculean awareness of his own gifts that is then beautifully counterweighted by a complete lack of success for quite a few years, which I always feel is a big part of the weight of Iron John, is that you can just somehow tell that even though this is, you know, uh, a great teacher and a great man explicating this tale, he knows a lot about solitude, he knows a lot about failure, and he's made hard decisions and lived in the consequence of those decisions. Mm. Uh, and, and, he, and he absolutely had. Yeah. But, but, but so Campbell and he, they're not quite as unlikely bedfellows as you may imagine. Uh, Robert was very disciplined. Uh, he stayed with me in my house in England, and I had the delight of... When he'd gone, he'd written lots of notes in my study. So to this day, I just everywhere I look, there's these little gnomic scripts. And Robert would make lists for the things he was going to do that day, and he'd do them. I remember, um, I remember he brought with him a copy of "On the Road" by Jack mm-hmm. Kerouac, and he'd always, he'd, he'd always been incredibly rude about Kerouac. Mm-hmm. And I said, <laughs> I said you're reading it now? And he said, it's incredible. And I was like, yeah, it is, isn't it? You know. After kind of publicly talking about how Kerouac just drowned himself in, in alcohol. and never- Yeah, and, and, and of course, all of those things are true. All of those things are true. But he could still appreciate that amazing work on the road. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I love that, you know? And, and that's something that uh, always strikes me about him is the way I described it the other day, was I, I see him as kind of like a full spectrum man. Like he could move in so many directions. And when you hear him giving a reading on stage, he goes from hilarity to solemnity in a split second. And it seems absolutely spontaneous and authentic. Like when I hear other people who are working in that realm, sometimes it feels to me like their kind of gravitas is performative. Like we have to like take this stuff seriously and that uh, sets a certain tone and it, uh, yeah, it feels kind of forced to me or something or a put on, but with him, it just, everything just seemed to erupt spontaneously in the moment. And I just, I get so much kind of joy and juice from listening to him in action. I, your, your instincts are entirely correct. That was what it was like. And that was what he was like. Um, he would he he'd always honor he'd always honor the mood of the moment and if he turned up and suddenly there was grief in him he'd just say it 
he'd just say it. And he'd reach into his bag, which he was continually losing, full of books of poems and new things he was working on. And he'd just read Rilke and he'd read Machado if he needed that heaviness. But if he wanted to move up into the lofty heights of the Nightingale, we'd get a morning on the Troubadours. And that's what happens when you have been, you know, thoroughly stewed for many, many years in, in great art. There's a, a phrase that alchemists use. It's called vas bene clausum, and it means the well-sealed vessel. And Bly was a very well-sealed vessel. There weren't too many cracks in him. Uh, and he could be playful. He could be um, absolutely senatorial when it was needed. Um, but... Yeah, it was. He was always the most interesting game in town. He, he'd have rows. People would not speak to him for years, and then they just couldn't resist showing up again. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I was, as I said, in at the Great Mother Conference, where a lot of he had far more profound and long-lasting friendships than he did with me. I'm thinking of people like. Uh, Fran Quinn and John Rosenwald and Ann Arbor and, and Rita Schumacher. I mean, it just it goes on and on and on. There's too many names for me to list. But um, you, it would it would be hard to turn from him. To tell you what it's like, okay, here's a here's a story that many people know, the story that Michael Mead made famous, the story of the Firebird. So the hunter goes into a forest and he's on his horse and uh, you know comes across the the feather of a firebird as long as a swan's wing as wide as an eagle's and you know the horse says you know don't pick don't pick the feather up nothing good can come of this you're going to know misery if you pick it up and he tries to walk away from it and to have walked away from Bly after you'd really encountered him would be like walking away from that feather your life would have less joy in it your life would have less trouble in it uh, your life would have less complexity. It would be a simpler life without Robert. He he wasn't a simple personality, and we loved him for that. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and you're talking earlier about uh, how he went through a whole period of um, isolation or feeling isolated with his art and his poetry, and maybe not appreciated. And I guess that's one of the things that gives him the ability to bring grief uh, to, to men, to reawaken the ability to grieve uh, in men in that period of the mid-80s through to the 90s. That was just seemed like no one else was talking about that, that men really needed to grieve. Yeah, and, uh, and isn't it interesting? I mean, I, I, don't mean to be, I don't mean to be flippant, but grief is the new sexy now. Yeah, you hear it habitually. It, you hear it so often that it's lost its roughage. It's lost its protein. I actually feel slightly irritated when someone is kind of putting their hand on me and saying, "You know, Martin, just be better for all of us if you just let it out." It's like, listen, <laughs> I, I, I'm fully aware of of the great gamut of emotion, and that um, Robert always described himself like Hillman as a, as a recovering Pu'er, you know, the mm -hmm. Pu'er Eternus. And of course, the person that is clinging onto the ankle of the Pu'er is the Senex, is the old man. Uh, and Bly 
really did a good job with his discipline and his labor and his footnotes and his regularity at the desk, no matter what he was feeling like, to honor both the jubilance of the Pu'er and the sobriety of the Senex. And that's what makes his work so staggering. It's very disciplined. That's the interesting thing. Although on stage, it looks like everything is happening um, mm. on, on, on a whim. And it was, he would, you can only relax like that when you've done an enormous amount of interior study every day before that moment. Mm-hmm. So that was what was going on. He could relax because in every single pocket he had gold. Yeah, you always get these moments when listening to him, uh, you know, doing a lecture or being interviewed by someone like Michael Toms in that great series that you can still get. Um, he just seems to show up without an agenda and just kind of asking, all right, well, where should we begin? You know, what do you want to talk about? And I get the sense that, yeah, it's the all of the hours and hours and hours of preparation that goes on when he's in his cabin, uh, when he's doing his study, all of that, that allows him to show up with the confidence just to say, okay, what's happening now? What's needed now? It's amazing. Yeah. Yes, and um, I, I think friends that were that really knew him knew that Robert was was only going to go to where he was interested, and so you know, could you imagine the fortune he could have accrued forever and ever and ever after Ryan John doing "Let's Meet the Wild Man" weekends? Oh yeah, uh, and he just said that is that is an inelegant yoke to put on the neck of that beautiful, mysterious Dionysian beast. And so he then he then <laughs> did a great job of writing, writing a book that no one wanted to buy, no, <laughs> which, of course, now everybody admits is prophetic of this, of this exact moment we're in. He just wrote it 25 years earlier. Um, so, yes, he was, he was never... I, I mean, I, I, I've sat on stage with him many, many times, and so I would have a sense of, you know, the only prep was what lived in his mind at that moment and the books in his bag and the thing he would do that you know well and anybody that knows him knew that he would do, he'd, he'd suddenly say to the audience, are you bored now? Do you want to think, should we talk about God? Do you, um, who here has something terrible to admit? You know, he would just completely, he'd Aikido the, the moment over and over again. He'd jujitsu every single room that he came into. Um, and that is absolutely extraordinary. I ha- He is not, there is nobody, absolutely nobody of his generation that was like that. But I it would also be a fallacy, though, to say that Robert... Uh, just pulled stuff out of the ether. He was a very good student, uh, and he'd fully admit this. He'd say, well, these poems that I've written now are indebted to Hafez and Rumi. These poems, I did this when I was thinking about Pablo Neruda. So he he never tries to cover his tracks in terms of his influences. Again, you see, that for me is a, is a huge maturity uh, and it makes me trust that person because a lot of yeah. people 
do anything they can to pretend that they just produced it out of you know their early morning meditation it's nonsense we all yeah. we all we all do that and then later in his work he wrote a lovely little book called gratitude to old teachers mm-hmm. and i read that last night the clues in the name gratitude to old teachers could we yeah. have a bit of manners please i i wonder why in the fortnight since he died I've been thinking a bit about, well, why did, how did I know him and how did all these things happen? And I think, honestly, part of the reason that I managed to travel with him for just a little bit, you know, someone like John Lee knew him better, um, is because I just knew how to talk to him. And I was very respectful. And he knew that I adored him, but I already had a father. Mm -hmm. I already had a joyful work. And I didn't have my hands in his pockets. There wasn't theft. But I was also very happy to say tonight was possibly the greatest poetry reading I've ever read or ever been in the presence of. So how we talk to our elders, I think, is really important. I think people are too flippant and disrespectful. Uh, And you were going to get short shrift if you treated Robert like that. It wasn't going to work. He told me a story about being in New York and going round to see the poet William Carlos Williams. And as he was heading to the door, Williams's wife came out and she said, I want you to know you were the first young poet to visit my husband in 20 years. Mm. Now, as Robert told me that, he wept. Mm. And he leaned into me, and I'd only met him once before. So this was a very intense experience. But that is the whole process that he was about. He could be fearfully critical. He could be, you know, famous for his harangues. But the excitement was that Bly said, you are part of a great tradition. Pick a teacher. Study Caravaggio, study Nina Simone, study Mirabai, believe in the great sound. Your life is brief. Get on with it. Uh, and, and we have all, all of us, been energized by that. You know, Martin Prechtel was in a tent outside Santa Fe before Robert turned up. Uh, and he recognized the genius of Martin. Uh, and Robert was very lucky for that to happen to him, as he would always say, you know, it was an extraordinary, um, extraordinary meeting and, you know, Maladoma Samay, all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you feel like that's um, part of what he gave you is that initiation into kind of a soul lineage of other poets and artists and romantics and whatever. No, here's here's the honest truth. No, he didn't actually. I'm I'm not I'm not I'm not raised uh, initially within within the Bly slipstream because I'm a Brit because I'm British. So there's a different um, a different interior structure to me. There's different influences, mm. primarily Ted Hughes, Robert Graves, um, and others. So actually, I I had never ever been around a community of people that had this kind of this kind of uh leadership at its center but no i was already well on my way i was already i'd been a wilderness rites of passage guide for 
uh, 10 or 15 years. So I'd, I'd lived in a tent for four years, which is why I got it, which is kind of the beginning of our relationship anyway, because that intrigued him. Um, so no, and honestly, I found trying to sort of trying to slip in an initiatory experience during a conference that people have paid money for a ludicrous idea and theatrical and nonsensical uh as a uh, my friend miguel rivera would say he said we spend five days talking and five minutes praying and it needs to be the other way around right and that was you know that was part of what uh the sensibility that someone like martin brought which was like these are you're you're beginning to bring in people that are not Jungians. They didn't learn this on a therapist's couch. Uh, they learnt it in you know in Guatemala, or they learnt it in Burkina Faso, uh, or they learnt it like I did up on Idris in Snowdonia for four days and nights. So that the the initiation side of things, it's not that I took it with a pinch of salt, but I'd already been around very significant medicine men yeah. uh, and so this wasn't that i already felt rooted but i just felt the giddiness the giddiness of of robert and his work interestingly there were a lot of young poets around him but they weren't really storytellers and i remember at the time thinking oh we're missing a trick here because actually fabulous though the poems are there's nothing in the whole wide world like a story. Nothing beats a story. And there was a deficit. And I I suppose I was um I was lucky because I managed to, you know, just just do that. Yeah. I guess, yeah, when I'm thinking about initiation, maybe not in so much like a kind of formal sense, but maybe uh it's closer to what I'm feeling. You know, just to say, like listening to Robert in some way it gives me permission to be beautiful in public. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Yes, I do. Which to me, coming from like the background that I do, where no man uh, dares to be beautiful, uh, blue, very blue collar, you know, um, very repressed emotions, except for anger and sarcasm. Uh, that to me is, feels like a kind of a blessing or initiation uh, to be shown that and to be shown that and to, you know, have that resonate with something in me that wants to emerge and, and be shown. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Permission giving. I mean, the word that the word as you're describing it, I think of is to be tempered and to be tempered. I don't see as initiatory. I see it as taking place over a longer time frame. Initiation usually involves like a short, sharp shock. Whereas the tempering, the gradual calling out, the raising up, that is wonderfully something that all of us can still access in, at this point in our lives. There are certain initiations that are meant to take place in adolescence and middle life that may or may not have happened and can pass us by and there's no way we can get back there. But that that tempering of the soul, that uh, that permission to be audacious to set out on the great adventure we can do that and yeah he was the most tremendous permission giver for for you know countless thousands of us it was extraordinary mm -hmm. yeah just by being himself 
not uh, trying to do it, not to trying trying to draw things out of people, but just by showing himself in his fullness. It's true, but he wasn't. He what that that's a process that took time in him. He wasn't like that in 1951. Uh, sure. You know, he was terribly nervous and thin and severe and unsmiling and serious. Really? It took, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. It took the sixties. You know, he it, it it took various things to drop for all of that to go. But if you'd known, uh, I think we've lost him now. But his real old Harvard buddy Don Hall, who called him Bob. I don't know. Said, him. Uh, said said no no no. This was this is an utterly different figure to the you know uh, serape ec- Dionysian ecstatic of you know, 19, 1969. But there was no going back after that. You know, once the doors had flown off, the doors had flown off. <laughs> so yeah, to think of him as kind of thin and and reedy and maybe overly intellectual or serious or something mm-hmm. like that is is wild, but. Yeah, in the middle of that happened the Vietnam War, which affected him very deeply. Yeah, of course. And we've got, you know, the Tooth Mother poem, which is so famous of that time. Other than um, uh, Ginsberg's Howl, it's one of those really big poems. A huge influence on Robert in the early days is Chinese poetry. Uh, Chinese, you know, old Chinese poetry, and specifically a book that came out called *The White Pony*, which is an anthology. It's a phenomenal anthology of these old Chinese poets. And his first book is called *Silence in the Snowy Fields*. Where is it? Here it is. Um, and that really, at times quite consciously takes the aesthetic of a Chinese landscape poem and plonks it in a rather unlikely uh, landscape, which is, you know, Minnesota. Mm -hmm. But it's quiet, it's private, there's snow, but there's all sorts of motifs. There's always motifs in, if you read carefully, you always see what Robert's excited about at the time. But these are very quiet poems, he emerges in a very quiet, mature mode that then it's the second book, The Light Around the Body, that wins the National Book Award. I mean, imagine this for Hutzpah. The guy is trying to raise 10,000 children with his wife, Carol, out on the plains. He wins a grand. They give him a grand in the 60s, and he gives it away. He gives it to the you know Native American resistance. He does it on stage. Someone comes up and collects the check. He managed to find someone who had a suit that he could borrow. That shows you the kind of figure that you're dealing with. You can't buy him. You can't mm. buy. Could you imagine going back to your family and saying, "I've just given a grand away"? Yeah, you with know, six kids at home. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Every everybody everybody's starving, and and you're living in a you're driving a car from the end of the Second World War. But that kind of thing rubs off. You just don't forget it. You just simply don't forget it. Mm. Yeah, so many of his uh, poems. Um, I was looking at some of the his his last period last night, and uh, they're almost like haikus in their like beautiful kind of simplicity, where he's talking about uh, you know the cornfield or the snowdrift getting closer to the house and like you said they're so like quiet and like pristine and yeah yeah let me read one yeah please uh 
So this is, if he's listening, this is for a, a mutual friend of Robertson, Mike, a man called Mike Quam, who loved these early poems. I am driving. It is dusk, Minnesota. The stubble field catches the last growth of sun. The soybeans are breathing on all sides. Old men are sitting before their houses on car seats in the small towns. I am happy. The moon rising above the turkey sheds. The small world of the car plunges through the deep fields of the night on the road from Wilmar to Milan. This solitude covered with iron moves through the fields of night, penetrated by the noise of crickets. Nearly to Milan, suddenly a small bridge and water kneeling in the moonlight. In small towns, the houses are built right on the ground. The lamplight falls on all fours in the grass. When I reach the river, the full moon covers it. A few people are talking low in a boat. It's just that beautiful, deep interiority, that hermeticness. I want to tell you a magical story, though, that helped someone else because of, because of Bly pointing me to that book, The White Pony. I got a copy. Actually, my friend Andreas Cornival got me a copy. But years later, I was approached by the dissident Chinese artist Ai Weiwei to write his catalogue because he was interested in Chinese mythology and he wanted me to look at the work and write about it. So I fly over to Berlin to meet him. This is only a few years ago. And as I am leaving the house, I see the white pony on my, uh, on my, in my library and I just grab it. And I meet him and we get to talking and he talks about how his father was a young, brilliant Chinese poet who was put in a labor camp by the Chinese for being too Western influenced by, you know, knowing who Yates was, was enough to get you in an internment camp. Mm. And Ai Weiwei told me about standing there watching the Chinese guards throwing the Odyssey into a bonfire. Mm. Can you imagine? But here's the thing, as he's talking to me, Ai Weiwei is sorrowing. He says, can you believe I have to tell you I have to convince you my father was a great poet. He was never published. He was never seen anywhere in the West. No one knows who he is. And I carry the grief of that my whole life. And I don't know what prompted me to do this. But I reached into my bag and I said, do you know this book, The White Pony? And he said, no, I've never heard of it. And I was about to read him, one of the old great Chinese poets, or I hoped he would read me, and I suddenly saw a section at the end called New Poets. And I felt all the hairs starting to go up on the back of my neck. I'm getting it now, yeah. And I opened the book, and he said, Daddy. Ugh. And there it was, all the praise that he thought his father had never received mm. in the book. 
They said, this man is a brilliant poet. He's influential. He's magical. He's fantastic. He's a link between the West and the East. I tell you, all work in the studio stopped. All the studio engineers, everybody just came and sat round us in a circle. And Ai Weiwei got to read the poems of his father he never knew were published. It was, you know, it was a breathtaking healing moment. And it was interesting, actually. It's never occurred to me. The first thing he ever said to me, he said, do you carry the bones of your father? And what I should have said is, no, I carry the bones of yours. And they're in this book. Mm. <laughs> it's so intense. It was so intense that I called a taxi. I said, right, I'm going to go now because this is, this is what you call a peak experience. Yeah. And I got dropped off at Berlin Airport about seven hours early, and I just sat there with my mouth open. But if it hadn't been for Robert being so influenced by the white poet, White Pony, I never would have bought the book, my hand would never have reached for it, and I never would have been able to help let something be set free in Ai Weiwei that day, most unexpectedly. Hmm. That's a strange world. Amazing. Yeah. Well, it's like where you started, uh, was it Rilke, with the ever-widening yeah. circles. You yeah. know, we have no idea where those circles are going to touch others. No. So you just got to, like, throw your own into the, into the pond, I guess, you know, without you any do. expectation of a return. The I feel closest to Robert, not when I'm telling a grand old fairy tale that he would have no doubt loved, but when I'm in an area that I've never been in before as a writer. I look back at my own books, and that would be there's a book called Scatterlings, there's another book called The Night Wages, and a few others. No one could have written those books but me. That's just that's just how it is. Mm-hmm. It takes a while to get there as a writer. And so it's interesting, the moment, whenever I feel less less obviously influenced by Bly is often the closest I feel to him, because you're then in the ground that he always pursued, where he wasn't afraid to let his influences be seen, but the great innovation and the furnace of his mind always pushed it into somewhere, somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah, that's so key, I think, is that uh, what inspires me most about him is his authenticity. And that doesn't inspire me to be more like Robert Bly. It inspires me to be more like myself. Yeah. And there's that thing about permission again, you know, permission to be yourself, to show yourself, to share what you have to offer the world and not be afraid to show your tracks, you know. Yeah, Yeah. it's interesting. I mean, we were just you were talking about uh, the um, haiku form and the early stuff. The big poetic form for Robert in the last few books is something called a gazal or a guzzle, as he used to call them, which is a really a Persian name for love poem. Um, And it was a, a form that was developed primarily in Persia and India. But he really, really finds something in in two books, The Night Abraham Called to the Stars and another book, which I just love, called My Sentence Was a Thousand Years of Joy. 
And what Bly managed to do, it's a very typical kind of thing that he was able to do. He took a Persian poetical form, but brought it into the consciousness of a northern landscape. So he writes Persian ghazals, but they have Odin in them, mm. and they have ravens in them, and they have uh, all kinds of secreted little poems and love messages to Ruth, his wife. You know, he was a great lover. He was, you know, he, there was a, there was a very much the that that appreciative consciousness in him. Mm-hmm. What's uh, what's the form of the gazelle? What's what makes it a gazelle? Um, well, the idea is, that as far as I am aware, is I, you I associate know, that word with songs. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, of course, the fez would have been sung. You know, so. Um, you, you know, you get maybe three or four lines, probably four, I suppose, and then theoretically you change the subject. There's a lot more going on than that. And if you really want to, the, the really great, one of the great companions Robert had was a man called Leonard Lewison. And Lenny uh, was the one of the great minds when it comes to understanding uh, Sufi thought and uh, particularly at our... Hafez and Rumi. Um, Lenny had absolute credibility in Iran. You know, this is, but but the book I'm trying to get at is called Angels Knocking at the Tavern Door. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was the, the result of 14 years, I think, of work between Lenny and Robert, where the poems clearly have that kind of beautiful smear of of how Robert would put it together, but it's absolutely loyal still to the theology of Hafez. And and Hafez has a very particular theology. You can't just go in there and start cutting and pasting them. There's a a rhythm and a reason to them. And Lenny wrote a wonderful wonderful, uh, long essay at the back. I must say, when that book came out, I I was working four jobs, earning almost nothing, no book to my name. But when I knew it was happening, it was such an achievement, I felt. I don't know how I had the gumption to do this. I hired in central London, St. James's Church in Piccadilly, where William Blake was baptised. I threw all my savings, everything, to hire this church so Robert and Lenny could come and read her fez in William Blake's church, and they did. Um, can you imagine Blake, Bly, her fez? I mean, it, you know, it was worth losing my shirt for that. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I think uh, maybe that's something that a lot of people don't know about him is that later in his life, uh, he got deep into Sufism. And I think he uh, even found a, a teacher, right? He did, yeah, Dr. Nukbash. Yeah, yeah. yeah he I, thanks him in one of his poems, actually. That name came up, and I wondered if that's who it was. Yeah, yeah, no, I remember driving him, driving him into London uh, to see Dr. Nukbash, and very unexpectedly, Meatloaf came on the radio. Do you remember Meatloaf, the rock singer? Oh, yeah. And Robert, I love this. 
<laughs> I love it. Turn it up. And and he sang Paradise by the Dashboard Light with Ruth, actually, I think it was in the bar as well. And I thought, okay, now this is something I'm never going to forget. Um, I, yeah, he sang he sang along with Meatloaf. But of course, it's only a guess, but that would have probably been around the time maybe they were falling in love in the 70s. Uh, but it was beautiful. I mean, you get to Meatloaf, you get Sufism, Anything, anything could happen at any, at any at any time. He was reading all the Ted Hughes biographies when he was staying with me. That I remember because Ted Hughes, and he told me this. He said he came to a conference in the mid sixties in London. Robert Bly, Ted Hughes, Alan Ginsberg, and drum roll, Pablo Neruda. Come on, what a lineup! <laughs> Wait, it's, it's beyond. It's beyond all rational thought and then he said something that really surprised me he said at the time pablo neruda was living in essex that's a bit like saying neruda oh, yeah. was living in new jersey you just wouldn't expect it yeah it was rare bird in the yeah, yeah. in the countryside or something yeah wow. uh, and he was doing he'd done some translations of neruda and said and neruda said well that's very good but um if you if we earn any money from this can you send it to my bookie and he sent it <laughs> And I remember, I you know, we had, I remember having gin and tonics and he looked at me and he said, do you realize you're talking to someone who Pablo Neruda invited to come and stay with him and I didn't go? <sighs> what was I thinking? What was I thinking? <laughs> even, you know, even in his uh, grand age. Yeah, you know, we all, we all blow a few. Yeah. <laughs> you know it's funny you say that i was going to ask you what he liked to drink well we uh we had a great that's a nice story actually um i think i told you earlier and i've intimated to you that robert was famous with his he had a little he had a poetry magazine called the 50s and then the 60s um and he was famous for blistering critiques on on poets mm -hmm. now he'd been very supportive of me but i knew i just knew uh that as our as i got to know him better i said look you've been really kind about my first book <laughs> tell me what you really but, think yeah 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 <laughs> would you would you have an afternoon with it and come at it i'm a big boy come at it you know as if you were briefly my enemy um and sure enough he did and it was devastating oh. um but after, and everyone was kind of, there was a lot of friends around, friends of his actually. We were all, you know, it was kind of quiet after afterwards. Uh, but I was... <laughs> I, 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 I was were okay. you just flattened out or what? No, no, you no, can't, okay. I'm not a flattened, you don't, that doesn't happen. All right, but everyone I, around you is kind I, of waiting, I, like, yeah, what's yeah. the reaction going to be? No, I'm I'm what is known in the world. Do you know what a pugilist is? Oh, Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Taking a few on the nose. Yeah, yeah. So it was not that wasn't going to knock me over because it was delivered with love and I'd asked for it, literally mm -hmm. asked for it. But we go into my local pub, the Exeter Inn, which is so old, it's where they uh, arrested Sir Walter Raleigh and took him to the tower. And we're sitting there. And I think Robert knows that he's delivered a lot of blows to a much, much, much younger man. I was only in my 30s. Um. And he says, could I have a little bit of beer? Every I want every beer here in a little glass. So there's like 15 tiny little cups of beer. 
and they wouldn't normally do this. And I, but I said to them, you don't know who this man is, but I'm telling you, and I'm your friend. Let's just let this happen. Okay. Uh, so we end up in the back where they play darts and Robert's got all these different beers and, and we drink them and he likes some of them and he doesn't like others. And then I'm walking home with him and there's a bunch of local kids outside a, a, a shop where you can buy food late at night, you know, like a kind of 7-Eleven. Where you go after the pub. Yeah, yeah. And and they're rattling on the windows and their bikes. They're all surrounded with their bikes. And uh, I'm trying to steer Robert past because, you know, he's an elderly gent. But no, 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 he wants to meet them. Uh, so he goes into the middle of them. He's, again, he's very, very tall and he's got his big hat on. And they form this circle. And... Again, this seems like a dream sequence, but it's it's correct. It was midnight. I remember the Ashburton clock striking midnight. I remember the moon was out. And he looks at these children who could have had knives, and he recites Innisfree, the whole of Innisfree by Yeats. I will arise now and go to Innisfree. Uh, and then he gets to the end of it and claps his huge hands together and 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 off they go on their bikes. And that was that was just like that all, all the time. I mean, this is a it's a harvest of stories, but as I said, someone I want to give a shout out to is the extraordinarily gifted teacher, John Lee, because I was at the last few men's conferences when Robert was still active and John had come back, I think probably after an absence of a few years and the way the care he gave Robert, they were staying together and he'd drive him back and forth was so beautiful and like a, a son and a father. Um, it was very touching for me to see again as a younger man how older men look after each other mm. as they get older and, and they remind each other of funny things and sweet things and simple things. But um, I, mm. saw that, I saw that a lot. So, you know, uh, John's work really could flatten a men's conference. It was so powerful. It was so different to Bly's. You know, Robert had these great kind of trills and flamethrowers and dragons, but John's stuff went straight into the life. John's stuff went straight into the the argument you daren't admit you had with your wife four hours before you got there. Mm, so it was a good mm -hmm. combination, man, really good. Mm. Uh, I was just lucky. Um Bly wasn't afraid of the word mythopoetic, you see. He just wasn't afraid of it, and we've become afraid of it. And it's like, this is insane. These are the things that, this is dead poet society. This is the stuff that makes us want to go out and live, to earn your name. You know, that's what Bly did for me. I felt I'd been given an incredible opportunity. We all did. Everybody felt like this. Now you've got to go out and earn what it means to be in the orbit of greatness because he was great. Hmm. What does that mean for you? Again, no interest. He would have no interest in ventriloquism. He doesn't want you to pretend to be him, but he wants to see you push out and take risks. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that word mythopoetic, it's become another one of those things like grief uh, where it's handled a lot of times like this uh, little fragile crystalline thing. And it's, you know, invoked with such kind of reverence. Um, it, it lacks like the kind of uh, vigorousness and meatiness that people like Bly approached myth 
fairy tale storytelling poetics with, you know, there wasn't that, there was like a real kind of maleness about him where it uh, wasn't this kind of like, I don't know, daintiness or something, or you know what I'm trying to get at? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it, it does, it can in, in the wrong hands, it can, it can lose its, it's, it can lose its vigor. It can lose its vigor. And he was a very, uh, you know, a, a vigorous, a vigorous figure. I asked him actually, he used to teach back in the early days, he'd teach several hundred people in the morning and then he'd go and do an afternoon workshop. Then he'd get up and do an evening as well. Now I'm telling you, you are toast. You're toast after you've done that. Um, he drew a circle on my back once, like, um, like a, a, you know, like a, an arrow and a, what do you call it? A target. Bullseye. Yeah, bullseye. bullseye. He said, you will attract all the love and all the wrath that you can imagine as soon as you step into the leadership and the life that you're going to have. And he was right. And I, and I do live in the orbit of all of that. But you can you imagine, you know, quite what he'd had to go through? You know, the the luckily he had a kind of he was he did have introverse introversion in him, but he also gained energy from, you know, half a dozen conversations before he got on stage and half a dozen conversations when he got off stage. Uh, I don't work like that. Once I'm done, I'm done. You know, I've left the best part of me. I leave it on the stage. Otherwise, I feel I let the story down or I let the idea down. But Robert always, you could see, and that's one of the reasons he was so attractive to people, it was possible to have a 15-minute conversation with him after he'd already taken us to heaven three times over during the evening. Yeah, well, that to me, I mean, I just think about what you said about the well-sealed vessel. You know, some people are just full of life energy, and he had a big vessel and was able to contain it, apparently. Um, you know, and it's there's something about his end, uh, his ending, that seems somewhat poetic to me, and I haven't been quite been able to put my finger on it but if people who are listening don't know uh for about the past 14 years of his life from about 80 to 94 when he died he uh had a declining dementia and uh, we didn't hear from him for the past you know 15 years or so and there's something about you know him putting out so much energy into the world and all of his travel and his work going into his last stage of life, going on this spiritual journey into Sufism, and then this inward journey of dementia just seems so kind of perfect. And I don't know if that seems like insensitive to say that that is a kind of seemingly perfect ending from where I stand, but just something about it seems quite right. Yeah, I, I can't I can't comment really because I can imagine the, the the weight it would have put on the people around him, especially Ruth. So so yeah. on, a, on a human on a human scale, it seems really rather tough to me. But you know, certainly he he moved into a dreaming of a kind. But I I wasn't I. I like many of us. I wrote him a few letters afterwards, never expecting to get anything back, and didn't. Um, 
make no mistake, there is an, there's, there's a an enormous old growth tree has come down. You know, it really, really has. And in the old bardic tradition, you although you know various other people are saying this is a time to celebrate, not to grieve. Well, that's fine, especially people that had the joy of Robert in person for 50 years, well, you can celebrate. But I grieve actually for the people that didn't get along with him or anything at all. Uh, because that is a, you know, that is a, a, a quality of experience that really was life-changing. I mean, you just hear it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. He changed people's lives. Uh, sometimes by frustrating them to the point of madness, but he still moved it along a bit. He always said, you know, love God, you can find him in 20 years. Hate God, you can find him in two. Uh, so there was always a bit of, you know, provocation. Mm. Yeah, he definitely had that uh, the air of crazy wisdom about him. Um, yeah, the, the grief I feel around him isn't personal because he was never there for me. Uh, he was always... a of kind of a historical figure, you know, by the time I read Iron John, it already been out five years or something. And then going back and listening to these conversations he had in the mid eighties and into the nineties. But what it brings up for me is the grief of not having been able to sit at the feet of someone like him and listen to stories and listen to the jokes and wrestle with an old man in a snowbank. That's the grief that uh, comes up for me. And there's something in that about like what he talked about with uh, the father hunger. And I think I could extend that to say an elder hunger or something like that. Yeah. And before you, most of us, you've only just, you've only just become dimly aware that one has that kind of hunger and suddenly you've got a grown child and you're expected to manifest something that you never you never quite had yourself. Now, if Robert was sitting here with us at this moment, he, he would quite likely say these lines from Rumi. If you haven't been fed, become bread. Yeah. If you haven't been fed, become bread. There comes a point, uh, and Michael Mead is brilliant at this, and, and Hillman, of course, where you can't complain about what you did not receive forever if you have a copy of the rag and bone shop of the heart in your library if you've got a youtube channel with actually countless hours uh, of robert and those wonderful olympian figures teaching and the thing to do my my counsel to anyone listening to this is try not to be overwhelmed by the body of mm. wisdom mm -hmm. teachers had because it, it can stop you in your tracks <laughs> yeah and 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 each story is a is an acupuncture session and there's a couple of points on your body that are going to wince in the story and just pay attention to those moments you don't need to doesn't need to make sense you don't need to understand it from beginning to end but look look for what hillman called felt experience people are very snobby about this they say well you know it's well, it's terribly romantic isn't it a bit self-help what in the name of god is wrong with self-help what in the name of God is wrong with a degree of self-reliance? Uh, you know, myth and stories are the, are the great 
you know, um, the great reservoir of the difficulty of trying to live a human life. So that's what I would say to everybody. Um, Read a small story, listen to Robert, or read, you know, Good Ways In in 2021, the last couple of books I wrote, Courting the Wild Twin and Smoke Hole. Uh, I write some very esoteric stuff, but those books in particular are consciously and lovingly part of the tradition that Robert is part of, and they're good. So go there, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. I love that uh, analogy of the stories being like acupuncture sessions and where you wince. Pay attention. Mm -hmm. Something that wants to move there, you know, acupuncture, but freeing up energy in the body and these stories is being able to get in there and do the same thing. I was listening to him read a story called uh, The Gnome, an old Grimm Brothers story. And, uh, you know, he did his thing where he stops to give the exegesis or allow something from the audience to come or the person he's sitting with. He said, now, what part of that story touched you? And the person he was with said one part of the story, but I was just thinking, oh, my God, no, it was the moment where the brother is waiting to be hauled up in the bucket and uh, his other brothers cut the rope. Uh, like he gets that betrayal and it was like, that really is the part that made me wince. And uh, yeah, so that's, I love that great advice. And thank you for saying that to, you know, naming the intimidation uh, that can come when we look at someone like that and go, how do we follow in that person's footsteps? How do we dare try to like bring something new to that? You know, and I think a lot of people get really frozen uh, by the body of work and don't feel they can add to it. So it becomes this uh, thing that's frozen in time and almost like a religion, like what people have done with Jung and um, where they don't move it forward, you know, and you get people like Hillman who are bold enough to say, no, no, like the work isn't done yet. You know, it has to be responding to the spirit of the times as well. And so it needs to move forward. It needs to live. And so thanks for naming that. Cause it's something that I feel sometimes just like, well, what the hell do I have to say? You know, it's all, these guys have said it all, man. Well, they did, they did say an awful <laughs> lot, but here's the, one of the reasons they said an awful lot actually is because they, they didn't just deal with intelligence. They deal with, perennial wisdoms the reason why fairy tales are so life-changing in their power is that brilliant though he was robert didn't make that happen he just connected to it and was an incredible vessel for it and so the opportunity for all of us is not to get obsessed with the finger pointing at the moon but to go to the moon yeah. You know, because uh, that's where all the stories live and all these delightful little details that want to tell you more about your life. I'd also like to finish with a counter image to what I began with, with the firebird. Do you remember the firebird feather? Mm-hmm. So for many, you know, for a guy like Robert, his whole life was walking through forests, finding firebird feathers. But that's not the only way in a fairy tale. Sometimes when you're lost, You don't find a firebird's feather. You just find a little lump of bread, just a small little breadcrumb, a bit of plum cake. And it's not dramatic. 
and it doesn't feel like you've had a Mount Olympus experience, but you nibble on it and it gives you just enough energy to keep walking for another day and then another day and then another day. And so that's my counsel to everybody is just to take courage and and it, it doesn't have to be, you know, as flamboyant. It doesn't have to be as explosions. You know, myth myth is a wild way of trying to tell the truth about something. There is, as I probably said to you before, there's as many ways of telling a story as there are weather patterns. And so the wonderful thing is the tradition that Robert was such a faithful witness to just can't end as long as people have heartbeats and imagination and fall in love with the wrong people and take risks, it it will inevitably continue. Now, what always happens is, you know, think about hip hop. There will have been people that were around uh, public enemy and they'll be around, they were around Jay-Z in the early days and they'll say, well, hip hop will never be what it was, but that isn't going to stop a 16-year-old in Connecticut or somewhere else finding a new form and the thing continues. There'll always be lulls, there'll always be surges, but Robert and God bless him, Michael Mead, and all of those guys, and I, it's very hard for me at this moment, not, I, I can't do it, but there's, there'll be so many people listening that knew Robert better than I, there's so many names, Gene D'Amico, it just it, it, Tom Werner, um, you know, oh God, Erin and Anna, Anna Molitor, uh, Jay Leeming, the Frantic Brothers, Danny Deardorff. It just goes on forever, and we all we all feel the same. You know, we're we're troubled and elated, but uh, but as Robert would once said, never hear a story and think it your duty not to tell it. Never hear a story and think it your duty not to tell it. So he passed something to us, just like in Tatterhood when the girl is throwing the ball to the wild girl in the woods or the young man is trying to chuck the key to the wild man in the, you know, in the cage. Mm -hmm. He's thrown something to us and our legs are going to totter underneath the weight. But that very tottering is part of what makes real human beings. Hmm. well thanks so much martin um it's been really nice to hear these stories and hear your reflections on your time with him i'll, I'll be talking to michael in a couple of days and get his side of things um and thanks for reminding me of john lee too i've I've uh, talked with him before and i'm going to reach out to him and see if he'll add to this uh this uh, kind of tribute to a great old man who has uh, kind of laid some tracks down for us to follow along in and then, uh, you know, carry on. Yeah, yeah. If you if you speak to Michael, which you will, please, if you don't mind, just relay my respect and love for what he's done and do let him know that there are thousands of people in Britain that have been, you know, deeply helped and re- and remain, you know, really connected to his work. So, you know, he he deserves, you know, he came in. They were the Cerebus. They were the three-headed dog. You know, Hellman, Bly, <laughs> and me, and 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 Michael Mead. More, more 
than kept his own with those two internationally recognized figures and has become, you know, uh, a, a great elder and example to all of us. Yeah. He's, he's become a Titan and um, he's like embraced the online world. He's doing zoom talks like every Friday night, man, and standing up and just delivering like indefatigable talk about a uh, life force in that guy. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful. And he still has that kind of cherubic uh, face and the, the twinkle in his eye. Like, I just love him. I adore him. Yeah, good. Good. Well, I'll pass that along. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, we'll pass this along and I'll let you know when it's out. All right, man. Take, Take care. care. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye. The Medicine Path is produced by Brian James on unceded Coast Salish territory, Vancouver Island, Canada. For more information, visit brianjames.ca. Music by Olive Artizoni, a.k.a. Greenhouse. Join the Medicine Path tribe and gain early access to episodes and the full podcast archives at patreon.com forward slash medicine path. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face. May the rain fall soft upon your fields. Until the next time we meet on the Medicine Path.
Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.